0: All righty. So thanks, everybody, for tuning into this episode. Today we have Tony Woods, who's the founder and executive director of Public Equity. Tony, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, man, I appreciate you for having me.
0: All right. So uh, we always love to start with missions of the organizations we're interviewing. So what is the mission of Public Equity?
1: So our mission at Public Equity is to improve public health, public safety, and to advocate for equitable distribution of resources in the most vulnerable communities.
0: All right. We'll get into all of those details, but before we do, why you, Tony? Why is this an organization that you founded and are the executive director of, and are putting all your passions towards? You
1: no, know, I've been asking myself that for a while, right? Um, but but no, I, I honestly believe that sometimes certain things find you in life. Um, so it, my my journey uh, on the path of social socially responsible work, uh, kind of, I I can't even really. I don't even really know where it started. I know one thing that really prompted me to really want to do this work was the death of a young man, Darian Albert, who was a student at Finger High School. Um, he was murdered. The video went viral and it was kind of like a sign of things to come um, because I, I think for me, I just kind of saw that we, we were starting to be kind of become desensitized to like people dying right in front of us. Um, but in addition to that, I grew up in a community where I saw a lot of violence. Um, so I think all of those things were kind of like the recipe that kind of prompted me to want to get involved and do this work.
0: Okay. Awesome. Um, so I think one of the, the probably common questions that you might get right off the way is, is equity is a part of your name of your organization. How does public equity define equity? Cause I know there's a lot of definitions out there and comparisons of equity versus equality. So I'd love to, to hear your opinion and why that was a part of, you know, the core title of your organization.
1: Yeah. For for me, equity just simply means fairness, right? Uh, so, being a black person or a person of color in America, we kind of are already at a disadvantage. Uh, so, for me, instead of having equality, we need we need a, a, a not a head start, but we need to be caught up first before we can even can compete. If that makes sense, so that's why we came up with the term public equity because it essentially means just access or fair and reasonable access for everybody.
0: Yeah. Um so the history and the origins of public equity, what were some of those initial cause excuse you mentioned a lot of different aspects of, of your organization. What were some of the initial programs uh or conversations or um equitable uh aspects were you trying to fix in the community that you, you know, founded the organization in?
1: Yeah. So interesting enough, we founded public equity in twenty twenty in February. And as we all know, COVID hit where the pandemic struck and like late February, early March. So initially we just wanted to do violence prevention and interruption, uh, work in the community, but COVID made us rethink everything. Um, and being out doing the work on the ground, we kind of saw all of the disparities and like healthcare and resources. So we had already come up with the concept of public equity, but that even made me want to even go further and go deeper into what we, we already kind of knew. Um, but it also forced us to have a more holistic approach to the work that we're doing. So we started looking at the social determinants of health, which are environmental factors, uh, food, nutrition, things of that nature. Um, so that's kind of how it all came together.
0: Yeah. So those disparities you mentioned in healthcare that were the initial focus, what were some of the activities that you're doing to help fix that, uh, inequity?
1: (laughs) One of the first things I did, because I was, at the time I was working in Inglewood, um, and in 2020, I mean, that was one of our highest number in terms of violence and homicides, like on the records, like probably in the last 20 to 30 years. So one of the first things I did was create create a one-pager to debunk myths about COVID-19. Um, I was around a lot of young people who were listening to like social media influencers and different people on the internet, get them false information about COVID and even vaccinations. So my thing was to, break it down, give them the information that they needed in the plainest and simplest terms because I speak the language of the people and then allow them to be able to make an informed decision. And it was highly effective. So even in doing that, um, we weren't necessarily promoting vaccines, um, but just again, have the information. But a lot of people came to us and we we actually served as a vaccination site in Inglewood and Roseland where we were able to get some people vaccinated.
0: Yeah. Now, there's also conversations out there about the differences between uh, maybe government-funded programs or even other organizations that are providing programs that that uh, help with symptoms of violence prevention, for example, versus attack the causes. So, have you seen that at all in the work that you're doing? And do you try to make a differentiation of like programming you do that helps with the symptoms versus the causes? And what might be more beneficial?
1: <laughs> well, as we all know, um, violence has been deemed as a public health crisis. It's like any other infectious disease. The thing is, public health work is preventive in nature, right? So we should always be thinking preventive. Uh, so one thing I did in my model, or the model that public equity has created, is kind of focus on pre- more preventive measures versus, versus interruption or intervention. Because a lot of times, by the time you try to intervene, it may be too late. You know what I mean? So yep. it's better to eat that apple a day um, prior to going to the doctor and the doctor saying you need to eat that apple today, apple a day or else.
0: Yep. Yeah. How – I think one of the reasons why it's – we, we see a lot of organizations and programs focusing more on the intervention versus the prevention is it's a lot harder to measure, right, the prevention and the preventative aspects because it's like you're preventing something from happening. So how could you make an argument in um, – and, and to, for grants, for example, or for, for getting additional funding from government. So how have you guys navigated through that at public equity of, of if the focus is preventative? Um, what are some of the data points that you could capture that, you know, you add to those grants or you add to the conversations with the, the public leaders that you talked to a couple of days ago?
1: Well, you just answered my question. <laughs> you said the key word, data, right? Yep. Data informs the work that we do. Um, so we do a, we do a baseline assessment with all of our participants, and in this assessment, we capture information about not only them but their family, how they grew up, where they grew up, uh, things such as do you are you a smoker, a non smoker, you know what I mean? All, all of yeah. these different things that could impact the way you feel about yourself and others. So we spend a lot of time gathering data, but not in the sense of like trying to make it like experimental, you know what I mean? But also. Yeah. I'm very hands-on. So I'm on the ground a lot too. So a lot of it is my own personal observation as well as uh, other key staff members.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, that's great. Now going back, I guess less t- comment on the data point. What are some of the more impactful data points that you're gathering, if you could share them, uh, that, that people uh, think are most important for being able to show the preventative impact that you guys are having? Is it like the overall, like you mentioned, the first 2020 was one of the highest record uh, years in terms of violence. Uh, is it just taking that very macro data point and seeing if it changed over time based on the work you're doing? Or are there a few more double clicks into that or more micro uh, data points that you're trying to measure?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's definitely that. And these are really good questions, by the way, too. <laughs> Sorry. So, so it's definitely that, right? Because we have had a de- saw a decrease since 2020. Um, in the city of Chicago overall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, some things are very hard to, to quantify. Yeah, so Those are the things that we focus on. So for exam- example, the traditional gang structure in Chicago no longer exists. It's block by block, it's clicks and crews, and it's the, the violence is more transient. So you got guys who may come from Englewood that may be clicked up with guys from Auburn Gresham, which is a neighboring community, and they may be clicked up with some guys from Roseland. So for us, we try to even track and measure that, because if we conduct a conflict mediation between two groups, there are probably another 10 to 20 parties involved. So we're actually preventing the spread in that way, but we're we're, we're finding, figuring out more creative ways to quantify that data as well, because that's important.
0: uh, Conflict mediation, you mentioned. Now, this is something that that, uh, one of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you about this, because some of these conflict mediation activities that I'm sure Public Equity does and other organizations that we've interviewed have done in their sort of justice space are probably similar, but what are some of the conflict mediation activities that you and your organization uh, does as part of your programming?
1: Well, uh, it's gonna sound a little weird when I say this, (laughs) Um, but I I think it's it's no one way Mm -hmm. to perform a conflict mediation. You just never know. Sometimes it could be as simple as, somebody even us just paying off a simple debt for somebody that they couldn't afford to pay off and it could potentially save somebody's life. But also I like to always kind of come bearing gifts. And what I mean by that is if I'm asking you to stop doing something, I need to replace it with something more positive and productive. So recently in the last two months, we conducted a huge mediation. Um, and what we did was offer both parties or both sides jobs, job. opportunities. Wow. Yeah. Um, And we even also open the space for them to even try to create out their own programming and entrepreneurial concepts that we could potentially support in in the near future if they they can continue this peace arrangement. So it's not it's not a one size fits all. policy. Um, It varies. It depends on what the ask is, because it's a negotiation process, like anything, like in any in any war, you're going to have like a negotiation process. We need this. This is our ask. So we kind of, we listen to both sides or if it's multiple parties involved, we listen to everybody. Then we kind of come together as a staff and a team and conclude what what makes the most sense and kind of work from there.
0: Yeah. I've never heard that as a a conflict mediation negotiation, having jobs as a part of it. Where did that idea come from and and how has it resulted to this point? Because that's such an interesting um, idea.
1: (laughs) Well, um, to be honest with you, most you know and i don't want to say most i have to be very careful with my words um it was a time i'll be 44. so the street economy the street economy was really booming in terms of people like making money um it's shifted a lot now it's more about violence right so i think if there's any opportunity for somebody to make some money specifically in a legit legitimate manner they're going to be okay with it right um and even with the work even with the job opportunities that we offered them it gave them an opportunity to almost be like peacekeepers and like custodians of their community so it just makes sense mm-hmm. and for me it's like we need to take baby steps cuz some some people may be deemed unemployable by society right we don't we don't believe that. We just believe that, again, it's all about that equity. So we want to work with them and meet them where they are. So this is a good opportunity to kind of get them trained up to be able to go into the regular work- workforce if they want to.
0: I feel like we went on a good tangent there. <laughs> but kind of going back to the programming of public equity, uh, we, we shared about the history and how the initial focus was on a lot of the healthcare disparities. Um Currently, how has that evolved? So current state, what are some of the main programs and focuses that you're having as an organization and as a leader of public equity?
1: Yeah, still, it's still even more prevalent now than it was in 2020 when COVID hit. Um, reason being, again, I think I said it kind of earlier in this interview, um, we need to focus more on, um, you know, the social determinants of health. Violence is just a byproduct of everything else. And if we just continue to focus on that, then we're going to miss the mark. But also, if we're trying to be preventive in nature, then we need to do what? Go younger. So that's been one of our focuses. But also, again, in this holistic approach, we need to be working with the entire family because that dynamic is affected just as much as the shooter and the victim. You know what I mean? So even thinking about vicarious trauma, um, I've seen instances where a five-year-old girl was looking out the window and saw somebody murdered with two people murdered in like a a year's time. And nobody was really working with that young lady and her family. Mm -hmm. But also, if we really want to be effective and really reach um, the young men that are most, and I hate this term, at risk, or I'll say vulnerable uh, to violence, um, we need to work with their families because these are the people that they love. So this gives me even a closer relationship to you if you're incarcerated, or even if you deny all of our services. If I'm working with your kid, your baby mother, your grandmother, your mother, it's going to soften your heart a little bit. And you're going to be like, you know what? Public equity ain't so bad, man. <laughs> or they asked me to do something, I need to kind of comply because they did look out for my baby mother and my daughter.
0: Yeah. Wow. Uh, so you've given a couple examples so far of, of the uh, addressing and, and working at the source younger, uh, the example of, of the jobs, uh, which is that I feel like that could change a lot, right? A trajectory in people's lives, uh, like you mentioned. Um, what would you say? Another common programming or, or activities that you're doing, maybe even focusing on youth, uh, to 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 set and change maybe trajectories or to set a better foundation for um, kind of minimizing the reoccurrence of um, yeah of violence in this example.
1: Uh, mental health, I think that's extremely important. I'm a huge proponent of mental health. I go to therapy myself. And I'm a firm believer that I can't ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do. That's the old street mantra. Don't ask me to do something you ain't going to do with me. You know what I mean? So even with my team, we incorporate CBI, which is cognitive behavior intervention. And it kind of introduces our participants to the mental health space because we have to destigmatize it. Because in most black and brown communities, we feel like I'm good. Ain't nothing wrong with me. And then we go out, and we may self-medicate, or we may find other ways to, you know, deflect from what's really going on. But it's 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 even worse than what we what we started. You know what I mean? It leaves us in a worse situation as as opposed to where we started. Uh, so I'm a big proponent of mental health. Uh, we do have two therapists on staff, um, and because we promote it so much as a team, um, but also a lot of people on my staff are actually Huge proponents of therapy, and they go to therapy as well. It's it's kind of easy to sell, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to find creative ways to kind of put the medicine in the candy. So one thing that I started off doing, I would go to some of the worst blocks in the community, and I would say, okay, let's do a, a, a cooking challenge. I cha- challenge you to cook a healthy meal in under fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. So I would lay out portable hot plates tables, all the utensils and everything that they needed and we would bring in like boneless, skinless chicken breasts and broccoli and stuff like that, right? Because food and stuff like that made people kind of vulnerable. So now I got you a little vulnerable. You a little, you know, you you kind of weak in this moment. I'm gonna use it <laughs> to start talking about thoughts, feelings and emotions, which is a part of the cognitive behavioral process. And in doing that, um people were just really receptive. Um because again, it's like you you got we you got to you got to meet people where they are you know what i mean so just always trying to find innovative ways to introduce these mental health concepts you know to our to my community
0: yeah i can imagine mental health is is one of the cores of of something that needs to be addressed because you you said it yourself at the beginning of the interview that that you kind of realized and have seen people start to become desensitized by people dying in front of them um and and i think news outlets uh play a part in that not saying it's bad or good but it's uh, there's just a lot negative news sells more than positive news right yeah, that, that's the unfortunate truth um and so i feel like what we're seeing a lot in the news is just all the, the negative aspects versus you know people and organizations that are doing amazing work in the communities being raised up at twice as much as the negative aspects um so the desensitization i think is is more prevalent now in the advent of social media just booming um, how how has your organization, or how do you address that? How do you resensitize people uh, to, uh, to 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 seeing that what's happening in front of them is like wrong and bad, and and it's traumatic, and it's something that needs to be addressed and, and seek help and talk about. Like, and, and I know we've talked about some of these things, but um, I'm wondering if there's any 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 silver bullets for resensitizing people to what's going on.
1: Yeah, I like that term resensitizing. <laughs> First, you have to be water. You have to be flexible and adaptable, right? Because you said something. So, initially, or I'll say maybe in the past 15 to 20 years, we've seen the advent of like social media really promote violence, right? Prior to that, people were outside on blocks. So, this is the new block now. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, we had to adapt and adjust. um, And we monitor social media. And I don't want to say that like in terms of like no police activity because it's not. Yeah, yeah but it's just that we're really in tune with what's going on. And when I say we, I mean my team, um, it keeps us connected because I've seen posts that I, that would, that could be detrimental to the community, you know, in terms of like people getting into it and having a violent, a potential violent conflict. And it allowed me time to reach out to both parties and even tell one party, Hey, we, take that down. we need to fix that. And it was like conversations that were had on the back end and it was able to be uh, rectified. Um, I think as far as like as you said, resensitizing people, I've been a part of quite a few campaigns uh throughout my tenure and doing this this work where we promoted like pro-social behavior through social media, but it can't be corny, right? Because they still you still have to meet people where they are. Yep. So I was working with a social media influencer in 2018 by the name of Zach TV One. Uh Zach TV One, if you're not familiar with them, had a huge platform. He broke most of the Chicago rappers in the city and he was like, he was like a little brother to me and he was my mentee. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He was killed by gun violence in 2018, I believe. So actually we started in 2017. Um, so one thing that we were doing, we promoted, for example, a rap battle. And then a rap battle because this platform was so huge. And most of the, most, most of these groups have a rapper attached to them. Right. So we know this, so. In the rap battle, you had to talk about the negative things in your community and how you how you wanted to see them change or how you could change it. And we initially just wanted to work within the Roseland community. And we ended up getting so many submissions that we made it a citywide initiative. And we were able to secure some funding to get guys wow. time to pay for their video to be recorded. Um, and it was a number of a, a few other things that came along with that. Um, so that was one thing. But even now i'm working with my team diligently to come up with another way to combat some of the social media negativity that we see every day but again it has to be culturally relevant because if i'm a 16 year old i don't want to hear the after school message that they used to play on wgn back in the day you know what i mean it's cool and we have to figure out ways to make peace cool and that's the beauty of this this community violence intervention profession because everybody that does this work on the ground, boots on the ground work, they come from the community. They have a voice in the community, meaning they were once people on the other side of the fence and people still respect them. So if, mm. they, if they're promoting the message of peace being cool, it means yep. a lot because they were once in the in the shoes of the perpetrator.
0: Yep. Well. Well, we're already 21 minutes in, uh, and I want to make sure that we have enough time to talk about the future of public equity. So before we hit record, you were talking about a recent trip that you just got back from. I'd love to hear about it. And and what are some of the future plans of public equity?
1: Yep. So I took a trip to Springfield, Illinois, yesterday, uh, the state's capital. Uh, Yesterday was the budget hearing by our governor, uh, Pritzker. So I went to advocate for community violence intervention. And what that means or looked like is I was actually, have, actually having conversations with some of our state reps and senators, some are familiar with the work and they strongly support it. But I went yesterday to talk to some of those who may have adverse opinions about some of the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Once you get in front of them, because I'm a, I'm a testimonial, you know what I mean? So I went to have those conversations and to advocate, but also just to stro- show, show solidarity with some other people who do the s- same work in other communities. Mm-hmm. To let the people of the, you know, the politicians in Springfield know that, hey, we're here because policy impacts everything. Right. And we, we want to have a voice in a political process. Growing up, I always thought politicians were scumbags, slime balls. And I'm like, I'd never participate in the political process because I don't think people care about us enough to even acknowledge mm-hmm. our voice. But as I've evolved, I understand that our votes do matter and not all politicians are bad people. They're human beings and actually they work for us. So we need to hold them accountable, but also if they don't know what our issues are, then we can't complain when they yeah. don't address it. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yep, so I'm, I'm learning more to be become more politically astute and I, I, take, I take trips to Springfield often. Um, I'm actually, interesting enough, tomorrow I'm testifying before a Senate hearing committee um, yeah. And the whole purpose of that is we're trying to come up with a program to get this bill passed where we can get people that do community violence intervention work credentialed almost enough to be social workers in their community and create a workforce around it without them actually having to go back to school until they can actually get a degree. Mm. That
0: yeah. Yeah. yep. Wow. And what would that if that were to get passed, what would that what would that mean for, for the work that they're doing in the community?
1: it means everything because uh one thing for sure with none of us are getting young i got a lot of gray on my you <laughs> see um and over time we want to evolve out of these positions and allow other people to come behind us to be honest with you I want to put violence prevention out of business right mm-hmm. i want to do this work so effectively that i got to go figure out something else to do right mm-hmm. so right. that's 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 one thing but but in addition to that um i think being a violence interrupter or a violence prevention specialist, it's a shelf life, right? And I wanted, when I thought about public equity and we created this model, I want public equity to serve as a community institution. And what I mean by that is I want it to be revolving doors for people to come in and have opportunities and jobs. So I don't want my outreach team or even myself to hold on to these positions for their life. Um, I think it's, it's highly important that, you know, we we evolve and grow in this work. We can still be attached to it in some shape, form or fashion, but some of us need to be in Springfield becoming lobbyists. You know what I mean? Some yeah. of us need to become mental health professionals. I'm, I'm, I'm in school right now to become a social worker. So I'm in the process of getting my bachelor's in social work and then I'm gonna go on to do, get my master's in public health. But that's the goal to evolve and allow other people to come in and take over because it's always young people's time.
0: Yeah, wow. Uh, the next question is usually the future uh, as well. What do you look hope it looks like 10 years from now, 15 years from now? But I think you answered it. Uh, violence prevention, violence prevention going out of business. <laughs> yeah. That, um, yeah.
1: So right now, just to give you some data uh, and some facts, we are only targeting 25% of the population that's deemed as vulnerable or high risk. The goal is to uh, work with 75% of that population at least, right? So if we're diligently doing this work and when i say we i speak loosely but i'm speaking of every violence prevention org in the city and that's a lot of us north east south and west side if we're diligently doing this work i'm i really believe that we can hit that number and actually exceed those expectations so yeah that is the goal to you know kind of put violence prevention out of business and really start focusing more on community health
0: yeah And that twenty five percent number that you shared is that just due to uh, the the amount of resources available? So if you were to quadruple the amount of resources, you'd get to one hundred percent, or you know, times it by three, you get to seventy five.
1: Absolutely. The more you scale it, the more likely you are. The more you scale the work, the more likely you are to hit that number. So you have to understand, like when this whole violence prevention concept was initiated, and this was like with the ceasefire model, early two thousands. Their uh, fiscal year ended like in June, the end of June. So we know that violence spikes in the summer months, right? So it wasn't sustainable at the time. But now we we, we got buy-in not only from the state, the city, the county, and a few, you know, pastoral entities, but also the private sector, the business community. So all of this matters because, again, we are first responders. We're no different than the paramedic. Or the fire department, or that you know the ambulance worker that shows up to the scene to respond to a shooting. So this is needed, and who better to do it than people who have the lived and shared experience?
0: Yeah. In Springfield, you mentioned that you gave you an opportunity to talk to people that were a little adverse to to what you guys are are trying to get through. Is that more so the the adverse? to having funds allocated by Pritzker to this cause versus police, for example. So is it is it more of like an adversity of how they feel that money can impact violence prevention versus being put elsewhere? Is that kind of the main aspect?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a mixture of both. But again, you know, if people don't know, then they, you know, they, they're just going to make their own decisions. That's what anybody is human nature. Yeah. yeah. We invite people to come out to the community and see what's going on and see the work up close and personal, but also when we go to talk to these people, we have data to support what we're saying. So it's not like I'm coming down there just trying to sell them on some feel good stuff. Like, Hey, we need this money. Yeah. Yep. You know, because I feel this way. No, it's like, here are the facts. Here's the data to support, you know, what we're pushing and promoting. And I'm going to be honest in most instances, once they hear and understand what it is we're trying to accomplish, most of them are bought in at least the ones that I've spoken with. Yep. Most part. Yep.
0: Wow. Well, this is amazing. Uh, we, we've covered a lot in 28 minutes already. Um, engagement people that are listening and inspired and want to support what type of engagement do you look for?
1: <laughs> uh, good question. So financial, yep. um, definitely uh volunteer based support as well. Uh, spring and summer is coming, approaching us fast. So we'll be doing a lot of, uh, community events, which whoever is tuning in can actually find on our website because we'll post like a list of our summer community calendar. Um, So we're always looking for that type of support, but also, so anybody that learned anything from this interview, just to promote the message about violence prevention work and kind of spread that awareness, because there's a lot of stigma surrounding the work. Um, For some people, it's just a bunch of ex-felons and ex-criminals out kind of, you know, shielding themselves behind this work, which is not the case at all. There are some very sincere people committed to changing the narrative in our communities and preventing violence. So it needs to be highlighted more because, as you said, we need to resensitize people. It's not just social media. It's the traditional media as well. You rarely see anything about us on the news. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when something bad happens, you always see that. But a lot of this stuff, people like us, public equity and other groups throughout the city, we're mediating some of these conflicts. And we you don't hear much about that.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, is there anything we missed or anything you want to leave us with before we wrap up here, this interview?
1: No, I think we talked about a lot. I would love yeah. to come back again have <laughs> you back. Um, and, you know, I think this was good.
0: Yeah. Me too. Me too. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for your time. People that are listening will share all of the social media links and, and website links and donation links uh, for you to to learn more and, and continue this education uh, and awareness and, and hopefully get engaged however you feel inspired to be engaged. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, t- yeah. Yeah. Tony. Nice. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Public Equity. So, yeah, it's cool. so great. Tony, thank you again so much for your time. Really appreciate it. The work you're doing is, is really amazing and me being hometown in Chicago is, is close to my heart. So thank you. Um, amazing work and we're honored to share the work that you're doing.
1: Yep. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you all.
0: Thank you.